Hello and welcome to this week's Doxit podcast coming to you on Sunday the 14th of June 2020. My name's Fiona Stewart. And I'm Philip Nitschke. And together we're the co-authors of the Peaceful Pill Handbook series. Now this week we're going to be discussing three topics. Firstly, the CNN story about Cindy Siegel Schepler. We carried this story over from last week because it was a little late in being published. Cindy made the trip to Pegasus Swiss Association shortly before Christmas last year and her story is a very interesting one. Secondly, we're going to be talking about the two, two of the topics in this month's update to the Peaceful Pill Handbook. Firstly, sodium nitrite and the update that we've made to that chapter. Secondly, we're going to be talking about the R2D debreather. You may have noticed that there is a hiatus now on the ordering of these devices. The inventor is making some further modifications. Uh, he assures us that they will be available again in about September. Is that right, Philip? Yeah, we expect it to be mid-August. Uh, Mid-August. Okay. So stay with us for the next 30 minutes and let's get started. This podcast is in memory of Cindy Siegel Schepler. Cindy, a 62-year-old native of Knoxville, Tennessee, went to the Pegasus Swiss Association in Basel shortly before Christmas last year to have a voluntary assisted death. Now, Cindy's case is very interesting. Her story is fascinating because she wasn't terminally ill. So even if there had been a right-to-die law in Tennessee, which there is not, she would never have been able to qualify for laws in any state in the US. Now, why is this, Philip? She had ME-CFS. Well, yes, not only she wouldn't have qualified. I mean, that's a problem. Oh, I suppose the interesting thing about ME, commonly known as chronic fatigue syndrome, CFS, it's a, quite an enigma, this condition. Many people don't even, uh, don't even acknowledge that it exists in the medical profession. So she would have had trouble with many doctors even convincing them she was sick. So it's got a long history, this condition, of people not knowing for sure whether it's a real illness or not. But nevertheless, what she shows, I suppose, by her example is that she had this condition that she was clear about and that she was feeling so disabled by it to the extent that she even sought information and access to an assisted suicide. So indeed it was serious enough in the way it was impacting on her, so the idea that it wasn't really a, a genuine disease, as many people try to argue, doesn't really, doesn't really follow from her example. But she would have had trouble with the medical profession getting them to take her seriously. So what do you think this shows about the Swiss system as in comparison to other countries' medical aid in dying laws? But the difficulty of, show, of getting the medical profession to take you seriously, and you pointed out there, even in the states of America which have legislation where a person with a terminal illness can get help to die, she would never have qualified. In the case of Switzerland, though, the idea that you have to be sick as acknowledged by a doctor isn't the case under Swiss law. The Swiss law is quite different and quite unique. It allows a person to get help to die as long as that assistance is provided by someone who's no malicious purpose involved in their actions. So you don't actually have to be sick at all, and you can get the assistance you need in Switzerland. The associations or organisations within Switzerland, and the one we're mostly involved with is Pegasus, they have tended to medicalise their own procedures so that it enables them to get a doctor to cooperate and prescribe the lethal drugs. But there's no real need under Swiss law for a person to be sick or terminally ill or have any serious condition. They simply have to argue that they want help to die and they need to have the cooperation when they get to Switzerland for someone to provide that assistance. Now, Cindy's story was published by CNN and it was written by a young 
journalist, a 30-something journalist, Ryan Pryor, who himself has ME and CFS. And it seems that Ryan and Cindy had been online friends for a number of years. And so he took a particular interest in this. I think he's been he's made a documentary about ME CFS called The Forgotten Plague. And I think that's won a few awards. Um, but I guess the thing about Cindy going to Switzerland, Ryan reports that when she got the green light, the so-called green light, which meant all her medical papers had been checked and she'd been scheduled to see the psychiatrist, etc., etc., um, when she got the green light, she danced around the room with joy. And this was the first time that her husband, David, had seen her out of bed and exuberant in many, many months, if not years. So what does that say? I mean, it's something about knowing that you've got the option of an exit plan should you need it. Yeah, I think we see that in all sorts of situations from people with serious diseases to people who have other reasons for wanting to die. Simply being or knowing that you've got your wish acknowledged and the ability to have that plan put into effect is terribly beneficial. People find a great uh, joy in knowing that they finally got this strategy in place so in her situation where she would have had difficulty finding anyone taking her seriously anyway except it would seem in this instance by the journalist involved so she's fortunate to find a journalist uh, who was taking the idea of chronic fatigue syndrome seriously and as you said had made a documentary on what they described as the forgotten plague uh, because many people claim about talk about this illness and are having trouble having their situation taken seriously but nevertheless, she's now got this option in place with Switzerland that would have made her and it did make her a whole lot happier. One interesting thing which I noticed in the article is that the American Medical Association still opposes physician-assisted suicide. I mean, in this day and age, this strikes you as just an anathema. I mean, what, what on earth are they thinking? Well, it's probably not that hard to understand. When we had the world's first law in Australia... The biggest opposition that came in to try and stop that legislation coming into effect in 1996 in the Northern Territory, the opposition came from the church, of course, but it also came from the medical profession. It was the Australian Medical Association that worked tirelessly to prevent this law from ever coming into place. Now, in the subsequent 25 years or so, as laws have come in around the world and the medical profession has, by and large, been dragged kicking and screaming into accepting the fact that the world is changing, people want this strategy, and in many cases, because we tend to wind up with medicalised laws, it's the doctors who turn out to be the ones who are administering the process. So they've come along to the party somewhat late and somewhat reluctantly, but many of their official organisations as the one you've just mentioned, the American Medical Association, are still not in favour of the whole process. So they grudgingly cooperate, but they certainly don't give their blessing to the process. And I remember at one point in around, oh, was it 2003, 2004, that you were invited to be a keynote speaker to the Australian Medical Association annual conference. And they were busy, you know, passing a number of motions about what, you know, what the organisation stood for. And in, on this particular occasion, they were trying to move from a neutral or from a hostile position against voluntary assisted dying to a neutral position. And I remember you walking away from that conference in disgust and telling me that they couldn't even bring themselves to a neutral position, which is what they have on abortion, for example. Yes, I suppose I was surprised to get the invite. I think in some ways I was being invited as something of a curiosity as a doctor who was actually supportive of the idea. But it did give me an opportunity to talk to the Australian Medical Association about the issue. And as you just mentioned, 
they couldn't bring themselves to pass a motion which would have been to have a non-position on an issue of assisted suicide and voluntary euthanasia. Do you remember telling me about this? Very much so. Oh, you do? Okay. I mean, a non-position. I mean, as Mm. you've just indicated there, they have a non-position on abortion and they should have a non-position rather than a position of hostility on an issue like assisted suicide, but they couldn't even come this far and, as far as I know, still haven't. So there are doctors cooperating, but not with the blessing of their own professional professional organisations. It's interesting that in this CNN article about Cindy Shepler that Ryan Pryor writes that the AMA is hostile, the American Medical Association is hostile, because they say it does more harm than good. I mean, and this gets back to some antiquated understanding of the Hippocratic Oath, doesn't it? Well, I mean, trying to understand why it is that the medical professions are at such uh, have such a different position than the general public on this issue is really quite one of, one of the difficult to understand aspects of this whole issue. Why is it that doctors simply cannot bring themselves or their organisations can't bring themselves to accept what is widely accepted by the general public? And that is that a person who's sick should be able to get lawful help, assistance to die. But the doctors generally, through their associations, can't come to that point. It's, look, there's no clear explanation that I've ever heard as to why that fully explains why there is such a level of opposition by the doctors. It's changing, but it's changing very slowly, and it's certainly changing at a much slower pace than the views that are expressed by the general public. And really, it's the general public's view which is important. We're all going to die, and it's really our view that is the general public's view that's important, not the attitudes uh, or approach of the medical profession. I mean, but to hold the Hippocratic Oath as as to the reason why, you know, a person as a medical physician could never support voluntary assisted dying is just, you know, it's just ridiculous given that the Hippocratic Oath once said that women should never be doctors and you should never cut the skin. Well, the idea of trying trying to hang your defence or hide behind the Hippocratic Oath is really what's going on here. Yes, you're quite right. The original Hippocratic Oath made the point that doctors shouldn't be cutting the skin, that is, shouldn't be involved in surgeries. That's obviously gone a long time ago. The idea that women shouldn't practice medicine was indeed part of the original oath. So the oath is, a, if you like, an oath in transition. And interestingly, many people who do medicine these days, including myself, when I did it back in the 80s, we didn't take the Hippocratic Oath in that particular university, Sydney University. So that's changing too. I mean, it's an evolving act, an oath. The general principle is do no harm. And many would say that helping a person die who's terminally ill or suffering badly or just has a very clear desire to take this step, giving them the help that they need to take or carry out this process entirely consistent with do no harm. So on the theme of do no harm, I mean, that certainly would be the standpoint of the staff at Pegasus Swiss Association. And it's interesting that if you look at Cindy's, some of her last words, especially to this journalist, Ryan Pryor, she says, quote, don't you dare let anybody say I gave up hope because I didn't. There's really just nothing more that can be done at this point. So the harm would have been to force Cindy to keep on living rather than respecting her wishes as a rational adult that now was the time to go, even though her primary diagnosis was something as nefarious, some might say, as ME and chronic fatigue syndrome. Yes, I think that's quite true. Do no harm there in this context is to take her wishes seriously and to acknowledge those wishes and to act upon them. And that's how I would see it as being entirely consistent with any modern version of the Hippocratic Oath. 
But uh, it's an important story. Her story is an important one, and I think it brings out many of these issues so that uh, other people, when they're reflecting on this situation, maybe people with troubling issues and circumstances and conditions where they really start to feel like death is their preferred option, need to know that there are some places in the world, Switzerland, example, where those wishes can be taken seriously and acted upon. Turning our attention now to this month's update to the Peaceful Pill Handbook, uh, the first topic that we wanted to explore today is the issue of sodium nitrite, Philip, and you felt the need that you wanted to make some clarifications in in regard to some of the criticism of so the much... content of the book that you've noticed online? Or... Yeah, it wasn't is so much a, criticism. It's a little strong, is it? So much as questions that had come in, people were a little confused because they had been reading material that's available on the internet, which seemed to contradict with some with some of the information that we'd provided in this most recent update to the handbook. That's the June fourth update to the handbook, which had a revised segment on the use of the what we call the inorganic salts, sodium nitrite, for use as the means for a peaceful death. There'd been conflicting pieces of evidence people were drawing attention to, and they wanted clarification. So. We felt it was an important opportunity to put this into the handbook and make it clear to people so that they do read other be- other pieces of information they can see that the handbook does indeed address these concerns. So what exactly have you been talking about? Well, one of the, the particular issue that, uh, that came up was the question about whether or not there's any advantage in taking something to lower stomach acid before you take your lethal drink of sodium nitrite. Now, sodium nitrate is a very lethal salt. If you drink it, you'll die, but there's ways to make sure that you die. In other words, to make it more effective, so-called potentiation. And one of those we've told and argued and described is the lowering of stomach acid. Now, there's been some material around that people have drawn attention to and they've worried and sent in questions saying, look, I've read that if you've got a higher level of stomach acid, then, in fact, the sodium nitrate works better because it actually decays and produces something called nitrous oxide and that that nitrous oxide is the means by which nitrite provides this peaceful death. Because they were confused about it, and I must say when I first looked at the material, it did seem to be a little contradictory. But in going into it in more detail, I've been able to work out what the the true answer is. It is an advantage to have lower stomach acid, and we talk about why. Okay, so that's the clarification that we've made in this month's update in regard to sodium nitrite. The second topic that we've covered concerns the R2D debreather. Now, for those listeners who may not know, the R2D debreather is a device which allows you to breathe down oxygen to have a peaceful, reliable, hypoxic death. It's essentially a replacement for the awful yuck plastic bag. Is that an accurate way of describing it? Well, I wouldn't say it was a replacement so much as that it is the same strategy in a way. You're actually putting yourself into an environment where there's no oxygen and you're dying because there's no oxygen in a peaceful, reliable way. Now, the usual way had been to use the so-called exit bag, the plastic bag, and fill it up with a gas like nitrogen. The debreather is a different strategy. There you have a closed system and you use up the oxygen and are left with an environment where there's no oxygen, in other words, just nitrogen, and have the death that way. So it works in a slightly different, with a slightly different principle. It's a slower means to achieve that uh, peaceful death, 
but of course it has some other advantages too. So it's an interesting device and some people see it as something they really want to have one of and in the cupboard just in case. If one day they get to that point where they want to die, they know they've got the means to carry out that step themselves. At one point we would like to clarify, there's been a bit of confusion over who actually created this device. It's not an exit device, uh, it's not an ex- exit invention, but we do cover it in some detail in the Peaceful Pill Handbook. I think it, uh, the debreather was first exhibited at the New Tech Conference in Toronto in Canada, wasn't it? In 2017, I think. Yes, it was the Toronto New Tech Conference where we had a competition running that year where we were looking at new ideas and new, new means for a person to obtain a peaceful death and we were asking for, if you like, inventions and ideas and along came the debreather, which had been around, I might say, some 10 years earlier. They have been around, the idea's been around, but this most recent development of that concept was produced and demonstrated at the Toronto Conference and people were pretty impressed with it. We were. We end up giving it a prize, I think. Exit did the New Tech Prize for that particular year. So, we, yes, you're right, we didn't develop it, but we were certainly interested in it and could see it as being a significant advantage. Many people would see it as something they really wanted and we wanted to make sure they knew about it. So the debreather's now been on sale for a few months. Um, it, I know it had significant delays because of COVID. It was because it's being manufactured and delivered out of China. But it has gone on sale, but we've just received news in the last week or so from the inventor in the US who says that he would like to make further modifications. So he's pulled it from sale for the moment and he hopes to re-release it in August. Is that right, Philip? Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, there's been some reports of people that have not been able to successfully use the device. And those reports, of course, have been sent in and worried the developer. And I can understand that because there's no clear reason that uh, it's not clear why that device didn't do what it was intended to do and there are some things that can be improved uh, quite easily improved it would seem and the developers decided to make those changes before continuing with the process of making it available so we supported that and it'll come out in uh, we understand it'll be re-released in August. Now we've been talking about this a bit during the week about how a failure could possibly occur and you you think that there's a degree of user um, know-how required if you're going to get hold of a debreather and successfully use it? Very much so. I mean, the, as you originally started to talk about the idea of the so-called exit bag, all of these methods which make use of gases and various other bits and pieces of equipment are very technique dependent. You need to know mechanically and physically what to do and to do it properly. So it's a bit different from just mixing up a salt or take popping a pill, basically, isn't it? There's a there's a bit more to it. Yes, I mean you can say it's the exact opposite. Something as simple as taking a drink and you die, that is if you've got your nembutel, you drink it and you die. This requires you to know what you're doing and to do carry out the mechanical steps in the right order and in the right way with a bit of proficiency. So there are some extra things you need to know before you use one of these methods. But I quickly add here that if you do it properly, they work, these strategies work extremely well. While we're on the topic of the debreather, we had some interesting correspondence come in during the week from a local fire department in Washington State in the US. Yeah, we were a bit surprised by that. There was an email correspondence that made the point that they had been called to attend 
the death of someone who had used a debreather. It seems that the persons who found the body or found the person who had died using this device were troubled by what they found as this unexplained piece of equipment that this person had clearly used to die, was troubled by it enough to call the fire services. They arrived and weren't too sure what it was they were dealing with because they hadn't seen one before. And they had also said that they'd had a spate of chemical-induced deaths in recent times, and so they weren't sure what was actually contained in the... Are they in the scrubbers? Is that what they're called, in the parts? Well, the debreather has a couple of canisters of uh, white pellets, which are things called scrubbers, to take out the carbon dioxide of the air and the circulation. And to someone finding a person who's died using this device may well have been worried about what these canisters of white tablets were, to the point of worrying whether they were perhaps some hazardous chemical. And the fire brigade were also worried... And when they found out what it was, they weren't troubled. But their suggestion was in the email to us, there's perhaps, and I think this is a good idea, there should be some classification like a hazmat uh, notification on the device, which makes it clear when people come along that there is no hazard associated with getting too close to one of these devices. And you think about the um, chapter on the debreather in the book in retrospect and you think, well, this is logical. I mean, we should have put in there something about you know maybe it's worthwhile to have a sticker on on these containers so first responders if they find you or or a close relative who maybe is finding you unexpectedly does know what you've done and can be assured that there's no danger to themselves I mean this is in contrast I guess to the warning that we do put in the carbon monoxide chapter that if you are in a car and you are using carbon monoxide then you absolutely have to have a warning sign in the windscreen to protect members of the public or someone who might might try and find you and save you. Although I should point out here that that particular development, that is the advice to put some warning in the window of a car where a person was using a gas like carbon monoxide, came about again through contact with fire services who asked us to make sure that our members knew about the risks that their members could be associated with if they were called upon to help someone who died in this fashion. When we, when we introduce and describe a new method in the handbook, we do have a classification in our RPA rating, which is to do with safety. It's called safety, and basically it means safety to other people. In other words, if you use this method, will your decision to die present any possible risk to someone who might find you in the process of dying or having successfully died? course there's a world of difference between carbon monoxide which indeed can present a difficulty for a person finding you to a person who's used a debreather where there is no risk to a person finding you having used this device and that's made clear in that classification. So this fire department email I mean it's a it's a very good heads up and a good suggestion that's gone the way of the inventor to say please look at this look at our suggestion take it seriously and I think he is so when the modifications to the debreather do come out in the middle of August. I think we'll also be seeing some warning stickers on the canisters so everyone can be assured that this is a safe device and there's no need to be fearful if you happen to find someone who has it strapped to them. Yeah, I think it's an interesting example of cooperation between people who want to take this step and end their lives and emergency services who may well come across someone taking this step. Now, if you want to know more about the issues that we've covered in this week's podcast, the good thing about having an online handbook is that we update it continuously throughout the year. So if you want to know more, go and have a look at www.peacefulpill.com. Next week, 
we're going to be talking about some of the ideology and philosophy of the right to die issue. There's been a few interesting academic journal papers come out this week, last week, last month, that we'd like to pick up on in regard to the medicalization of death. Is dying a medical issue? Do you need a person in a white coat standing by your bed or can you do it yourself? We look forward to your company next week. We would like to thank Parry Music and The Soft Shoe for our music interludes today and thank our tech people who have helped make this possible. Bye for now. Thank you.